Hey, what's going on, folks? This is Undead Foya, and this will be the first podcast episode that I actually upload to some of the major platforms out there. So let me go ahead and give a little bit of background for those that might be new to this. Um, I'm a CPA. I'm actually an auditor by trade. And a few years ago, I got interested in Russiagate. And, you know, it was probably back in 2018. I started going through Twitter, uh, reading threads by Undercover Huber, Fool Nelson, Stephen McIntyre, Hans Monkey, Technofog, Walk of Fire. Uh, Jeff Carlson had a great website as well for a long time. Um, and just reading through those guys and seeing what they were calling out really struck a chord with me because what they were saying did not line up with what the media was saying at all. And I thought to myself, how could these guys have such a different take and what are they doing to find this information? And as I followed them, I learned all they're doing is looking at documents. I mean, they don't have you know, sources within the government. They don't have any special insights. They are brilliant, but they're you know, all they're doing is looking. And what I found, especially as the Mueller report came up with nothing and more and more evidence came out, these guys were proven right. And... With that in mind, I, I started looking into things myself a little bit. Um, probably 2020 is when I first did any type of research. I wasn't truly independent, but you know, when Fool or Walk of Fire would post something out there, I would take a look, um, try to do some research myself, or at least try to back into how they came up with some of the answers that they were coming up with. So there was one instance where Igor Danchenko was identified by, hmm, and, you know, he's an anonymous Twitter user out there, um, but he did some brilliant deduction, you know, through a highly redacted document, just piecing together some clues, and he was able to identify Igor Danchenko as a primary subsource, which was huge, because what we had thought previously and what had been described by the FBI was that the primary subsource was Russian-based. And as it turns out, Danchenko was a Russian, but he was based in Washington, D.C. And he had a history of working with liberal think tanks like Brookings Institute. So that was obviously a bombshell. And that's that's probably the moment that I, it really um, drove a sense within me that there was something much worse going on. Um, Certainly the Mueller report coming out in the face of all the public reporting out there and just shown that all that reporting was false and fake. And um, that might have started it. But by the time we identified Igor Danchenko, um, I fully understood that there was something wrong out there. So um, in some of those threads that were posted, um, Fool Nelson, some of the others had posted uh, a few images around Igor Danchenko and started identifying subsources. And it was to these subsources that various uh, claims were attributed. So, you know, Ivan Vorontsov, uh, Olga Galkina, uh, some of these others out there. So I started researching and, you know, it's not a big deal because it's not an important subsource, but I did identify Alexei Dundich as subsource number four. Now, there aren't any claims identified or attributed to him. So it's it was more of an accident in that I was just looking at what Fool Nelson had already posted and I was able to, to figure out that Dundish was sort of connected to that. So that was kind of the first 
bit of research I ever did and, um, you know, kind of put it to the side. I mean, I didn't really continue at the time. So probably last year, probably about a year ago, I started getting a little bit more time and, you know, I spent a few months where I was just reading through documents myself. You know, I didn't have anybody to bounce ideas off of. And I eventually created another Twitter account. And, um, you know, I had I had something that I wanted to run by people. And that was actually Barack Obama and um, Larry Poltovich. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he's the CEO of Target Labs. And I knew that Target Labs was the entity that Danchenko um, was having payments laundered through. So I came up with a video and I, I noticed later that a couple of people had, had maybe found it before, but um, basically Barack Obama uh, had introduced Larry at a public event. And I thought that was pretty interesting just to have the president of the United States connected in any part to um, what is a pretty illicit scheme and, and maybe a conspiracy. I thought, merited a story by itself. I mean, that's anytime a president shakes hands with a criminal or somebody connected to a criminal, I think it's, it's always a story. So I tweeted that out and that kind of got the attention of fool and walk of fire. And they're extremely gracious with their time or next couple of months. And anytime I had a question, I was able to bounce it off them. And I was actually the most important question I ever asked them was, you know, how did you get to these answers? How did you do this? And by reverse engineering what they told me, I was able to pick up some of those skills and, and add them to my toolkit. And that served me well as I became sort of a, a Russiagate sleuth. Um, and then I think, you know, at some point I've been able to add a little bit of value. So uh, Rodney Joffe, obviously he was identified early on by Fool Nelson. Um, hopefully everybody knows that by now, but um, Fool Nelson had been doing some digging through the Alpha Bank civil case. And he noticed that uh, Rodney Joffe was under subpoena. And later on, we actually got the Daniel Jones deposition, realized that Daniel Jones had named him. And obviously that was confirmation. But, um, you know, I think Rodney Joffe's lawyer had actually confirmed it prior to that. So when uh, Joffe's name got out there, we started doing deep dives into Joffe's history. And there's a lot there. I mean, there's you can spend hours and hours just going down all different connections that Rodney Joffe has. And at some point um, I was doing a search, doing some uh, kind of a deep dive. I don't remember exactly the term. It was probably Rodney Joffe scam or Rodney Joffe fraud, just kind of fishing, seeing what I could find. It was like maybe page 24 of Google that I saw some weird search forum thing. I'd never seen it before. I've never seen it since. But it was actually some post like slurring Rodney Joffe, some pretty nasty language. But what they alleged was some type of connection to a scam. And so I went to that forum and there was no link. (laughs) There's no more information. But I searched the forum and I found another post by that same user where they linked to a YouTube video. And YouTube video is about two hours long on a guy named Thomas Obenhuber. And I knew by that point that Open Huber was an old business partner of Rodney Joffe. So that piqued my interest a little bit. And it was like a two-hour video. So maybe 34 minutes in, I, it was something like that. Um, this guy, his name is uh, Who's the Tonic Live? And he was just doing a research project at random about Thomas Open Huber. And he just happened to stumble across this piece 
about Rodney Joffe. And this was probably 18 months ago. It was well before we knew anything about Rodney Joffe. So this guy just casually stumbled upon this scam that Rodney Joffe had perpetrated in the state of Iowa. And Rodney Joffe had some type of uh, company set up for mail order clocks. And basically he was telling, he was sending out mailers to millions of people saying, you won this, you know, this great grandfather clock or whatever, you know, uh, playing it up to a big deal. And then he said, you know, all you have to do is pay for shipping and shipping. He was charging $69 and 19 cents. And everybody probably thought, wow, that's amazing. You know, that really, really lucky to get this grandfather clock for $69. And sure enough, when it arrived, people learned it was just press board, you know, battery operated garbage. that was actually only worth about $10. And so Rodney Joffe was making bank on the scam and uh, ended up being a legal settlement settlement for the state of Iowa for $800,000 back in uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. And then there was other states involved as well. So um, obviously it being that long ago, I don't know the full extent of it, but I was able to find and build on what Who's Atomic had found. And I found articles relating to uh, portions of it in Missouri, New Mexico, uh, Rhode Island. And then there's potentially another extension of it in a uh, company called American Home Products Warehouse. And what I came across was actually a, a complaint that said they had received the exact same mailer with a different company name, that being American Home Products Warehouse just a few months before, but it was an identical mailer. Um, and that kind of remains unexplored. But I did take note that American Home Products Warehouse did have a registration in 1994 in South Africa which is Rodney Joffe's uh, home country. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I uh, actually FOIA'd um, the U.S. The US Postal, Postal Inspector's entity uh, for old records that they had on that scam. And they actually came up with a, a piece on it where uh, the inspector had the same thought that I did. Um, he had come across the mailer as well. That was exactly the same as what Ronnie Joffe's uh, Iowa scam had, and it was American Home Products Warehouse. So, um, you know, maybe there's another piece there, but uh, that was probably October that I actually came up with that. And shortly thereafter, I found a piece on PlasmaNet, and PlasmaNet runs freelotto.com, or I think it used to, might have changed by now, but they were actually... Um, subject to a legal settlement with the state of New York with old Andrew Cuomo when he was the attorney general there because they were kind of doing the same thing. They were spamming people that they had won a lottery. And then when these users clicked on this lottery, sure enough, they were forced to actually sign up for uh, this advertisement scam system and they hadn't actually won anything. Um, so <laughs> They had to do a legal settlement there. And Rodney Joffe is actually, he was a director of the company. And I think later on he became, um, later on he was on the board of directors. And there's actually another side note in that um, Bostrom Holdings actually did some work on that. So obviously I'm throwing a few terms here. If you don't know what Bostrom Holdings is, uh, you can check out my Twitter. I think I've tweeted about it. Um, otherwise, Fool Nelson or somebody else probably has a few threads on Bostrom. Uh, let's see here. What else do I want to cover? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, there's a few research bits that I've, I've found. Um, I'm probably more well-known for FOIAs at this point, which is kind of the moniker of undead FOIA. Um, late December, I actually got COVID and I was just home for like a week. And I, was, I drew a lot of inspiration from Margot Cleveland because she had reached out, she had FOIA to Georgia Tech and come back with records related to monosyntonococcus. And I thought that was really interesting, but I had a lot of follow-up questions. And to her credit, when I reached out to Margot, she was like, yeah, this is exactly what I put in. You know, this is what I requested. And then I was able to build off that. And she was like, you know, hey, if you get anything interesting, let me know. (laughs) Which is really nice because what I really struggled with when I was trying to um, get the mail scam information out there was, you know, I gave it to probably 10 or 12 different news entities and nobody would call me back. Nobody would message me back. Nobody would email me back. Um, I had actually forwarded it to Paul Sperry in October and he was the only one out of like 12 journalists or, or news entities. He was the only one that even confirmed receipt of it. Um, so Paul Sperry actually did publish that in February. Um, but that was a couple of months after I had connected with Margo. So when I connected with Margo, it was just so refreshing to have an actual journalist respond and open herself up to some collaboration. And so I started putting in voice with Georgia Tech. And then um, it was probably the second or third release that we got something really interesting. And then I gave it to her and, um, you know, then she put in a few more FOIAs. And then she was kind enough to share the results of FOIAs that she would get back. And that let, led me to go and put in FOIAs myself. And we really have gone back and forth like that for the last six months. And it's just been amazing to collaborate with her. And then obviously she's wrote a bu- bunch of articles. Um, we've come up with a lot of lot of information, probably thousands of pages of FOIA documents at this point. Um, we found David Dagan and Monosyntonococcus you know, provided work product to special counsel Mueller, which is huge. That's something we did not know before. Um, we obtained emails about Monos um, being tasked by DARPA to look, look into Guccifer 2.0. We have several other email communications where they're discussing, uh, they're tasking to look in the DNC hack. And that was huge because to our knowledge, all we knew about was that they were implicated in some fashion and the alpha server allegations. Um, and beyond that, I mean, we had no idea that anything related to the DNC hack would pop up. So, um, you know, I think Jerry Dunleavy took that information that we had built and he contacted DARPA and DARPA actually went on the record and said they didn't help with the Mueller investigation at all. And that's huge because that's, that's obviously untrue at this point, but to get them on the record, I think is so so interesting now and such a, an important data point um, in any respect that this goes, because if they lied or if they have knowledge about what David Dagan did uh, with special counsel Mueller or anything else, I mean, it's, it's obviously going to be, you know, a huge blow up now. So uh, that's probably enough about me. Uh, that's kind of like a little bit of background. I mean, there's a little bit of research. There's some FOIAs. Uh, but more than anything, I've been in a position to learn from people that are a lot smarter than me. Um, I've been very fortunate to be able to 
direct message and group chat people like Fool Nelson and Walk of Fire and uh, Technofog and some of these other guys. And I've been able to learn just so much from them. So um, with that in mind, I mean, I started doing Spaces chats on Twitter uh, probably six months ago. I think everybody really likes those. Uh, it gives us a chance to connect with, you know, federal prosecutors and defense lawyers. And uh, we get a, a little bit of everybody in there. Um, and we've had Michael Caputo in there and tell his story, which was which was incredible. There's actually a recording out there. Everybody should should go check that out for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've got a little, little bit of everybody that's been on that chat and it's been amazing. And um, I've continued to put in FOIAs. So I FOIAed Georgia Tech. I FOIAed the state of Georgia Attorney General's office. I've got a ton of FOIAs out there at the federal level. Um, unfortunately, I haven't had any process yet. They're just much slower. Um, so we'll see what else comes back. I'm actually expecting some DARPA FOIAs to come back soon, um, which are going to be really, really interesting. And we'll see what happens. So on this chat, uh, what I'm actually wanting to talk about tonight is the fourth FISA warrant on Carter Page. So the reason for, for that is that on June 29th, that is the statute of limitation date on the application itself. Now, technically speaking, the FISA coverage extended through September, and they had a duty to inform the FISA court about any exculpatory information. So you can kind of make a case that Durham might have some runway if he wants to file criminal charges through September. But I think June 29th is probably a more likely cutoff date. It's just a little bit cleaner, I think, um, in that you have people preparing an application who are reviewing all the data, who are omitting information, um, excluding you know exculpatory information. So uh, there's a few data points that I want to bring up just because obviously this is the fourth FISA warrant. The third and fourth warrants were invalidated by the FISA court. Uh, which is obviously a huge indication that there were major red flags. We we got the IG Horowitz report. We know there were 17 material omissions and errors in the FISA warrants. Most of them, I mean, I want to say it was like half of them were present in the first FISA warrant. And to my knowledge, none of them ever got corrected through all four warrants. So you can make the case. I mean, the fourth FISA warrant is by far the worst. Um, you know, by that point, they had three FISA warrants. They had come up with nothing. They had built no cases. Uh, Igor Danchenko, who's the primary subsource, he had been interviewed in January. He'd been interviewed in March. He'd been interviewed in May. And he was interviewed on June 15th. So four interviews. And all four interviews, he told the FBI that the claims attributed to him were embellished. Um, he said in some cases that he did not tell Christopher Steele these things. Um, he said it was bar talk. There was no corroboration whatsoever. And for four meetings, four interviews with the FBI, the FBI included none of that information in their FISA applications to spy on Carter Page. I, I mean, that's inexplicable. For you know the, the third FISA warrant, you could say, well, he's only interviewed once or twice. But now we have four interviews and it's just inexcusable. But I also want to point this one out. Um, I wrote about this on my Substack. 
I see Undercover Huber actually wrote about this, I think, three years ago. So I'm kind of rehashing something he had come up with. But Joe Pianka, this is just a huge point that should have stopped everything in its tracks in December of 2016. It should have stopped right there because Joe Pianka had received the list of Trump associates in late July to early August 2016. And on that list of Trump associates was Carter Page and Sergey Milian. And that should have been weird enough to stop right there and ask some questions because they found out that the Clinton campaign was trying to feed them information about the Alpha case. And they should have connected that to what Christopher Steele was doing. And they should have connected that to this list of Trump associates. There's just too much uh, corroboration. There's too much similarities there not to step back and say, wait a minute, this stuff has to be connected. And if they had done that, they would have stopped. They would have stopped in August, September, November, December. They had a lot of opportunities to stop and not spy on Carter Page. Joe Pianca got this list of Trump associates, but then he was notified in October, October 12th, by the New York field office that they were going to open a counterintelligence investigation into Sergey Milian. And that becomes really, really important because in December, Bruce Orr tells Joe Pianca that Glenn Simpson has told him that Sergey Milian is the primary subsource for the dossier. Okay, so in October, Pianca believes, Pianca knows that there's a counterintelligence investigation into Sergey Milian, and two months later, he finds out supposedly, allegedly, that Milian is supposed to be the primary subsource. And that becomes really important because they don't disclose that to the FISA court. They never tell the FISA court that they had an open counterintelligence investigation into who was believed or alleged to be the primary subsource. And that's inexcusable. And as I go through all these details, I mean, we don't have the smoking gun, okay? And I, I understand that's a sense of frustration. And it's easy for people to wave their hand at this and say, well, you don't have any evidence. And that's fair. We don't have, you know, the email to Jim Comey saying, Dan Chanko uh, denied everything. You know, we've interviewed Dan Chanko and it's all debunked. We don't have that email to Jim Comey or to Andrew McCabe, okay? But what we do have, and what we actually learned in the Sussman case, is a very long list of instances where they should have stopped, where they had enough information, where they should have shut everything down, where they had enough information that was exculpatory, and inexplicably, they didn't turn it over to the FISA court. And that that was thought to begin in roughly January 2017. That's when we really thought they had really gotten out of bounds. But what we learned in the Sussman trial was actually back in September and October, there were a lot of red flags. And we have emails from Joe Pianca uh, related to this Alpha Server case where he's saying the director, Jim Comey, is really fired up about this Alpha Server case. And that tells us that the FBI leadership was closely monitoring all these developments. And that becomes really important when you talk about Igor Danchenko. 
how likely is it that Director Comey is going to be involved in the alpha server stuff and be really interested in that and then not hear about Igor Danchenko's interview? How about the interview in January or the interview in March? Uh, May, Comey had been fired, but Andrew McCabe was in there. And Andrew McCabe should have heard about the interview in May, and he should have heard about the interview in June. And to have four interviews with Igor Nanchenko, and apparently nobody in the FBI to be witting of that, I don't buy it. They were state, they were micromanaging this investigation. That's clear to me. So we don't have the smoking gun, but we have a lot of smoke right now. And there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of discussion about what John Durham's going to do. Is he going to stick with the private actors? A lot of people are talking about Rodney Joffe. I think he's in the crosshairs. I think that's um, fair speculation at this point. You know, some of the other private actors, maybe even in the Clinton campaign, certainly under the microscope. And there's kind of been the sense of, well, Durham just painted the FBI as the victims in the Sussman case, like they were duped. And therefore, you know, Durham's not going to do anything about the FBI. And I, I don't think that's fair because the FBI as an institution was defrauded. They were given false information and they were uh, spurred to action by that false information. But when you go to the individual level and say, what did Joe Pienka know or what did Andrew McCabe know? That's a different question. So the FBI as an institution can be duped. They can be the victim of false information or fabricated claims. But on the individual level, there can still be crimes that are found. And going into the Sussman trial, I would say I had moved away. I had said, I don't think there's anything coming coming for the FBI as far as criminal charges. After going to the trial for a few days and seeing the trial exhibits, I have to say, I have changed my mind and I'm trying not to be full of hopium and just tell everybody like, yeah, this, you know, it's coming, but I would be really, really surprised if John Durham could just walk away from this with everything that we've seen. And as I said, I mean, we don't have the smoking gun yet, but there's just too many signs and there's too many signals, especially when you look at somebody like Joe Pianca being involved in so many different details Approving Stefan Halper as a confidential human source, for example. Obviously, I talked about the Sergey Million pieces. Uh, he also ambushed uh, General Flynn at the White House. He was one of the two people that went and interviewed him at the White House. But then within 10 days of interviewing General Flynn, Joe Pianca resigned from the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. So somebody that was involved in every piece of it up to then all of a sudden wipes his hands and says he doesn't want anything more to do with it. And that's a major, major red flag right there. So hopefully John Durham has has scooped him up at least and and brought him in for interview because I think Joe Pianca is somebody that knows a lot about everybody there. So I'd be really interested to hear what he has to say. Um, Getting back to the fourth FISA warrant a little bit. Obviously we talked about IG Horowitz findings. Um, not correcting those errors. Um, Kevin Kleinsmith, revisiting this a little bit. So we know Kevin Kleinsmith was convicted. Uh, he pled guilty to altering a statement that um, Carter Page was not uh, a source for the CIA. So that was actually on the fourth FISA warrant. A lot of people don't realize that. It wasn't on the first FISA warrant. It was, it was 
months later and the existence of these FISA warrants against Carter Page was disclosed publicly probably March or April 2017. So Carter Page knew about this and he was getting really upset and he was starting to push back on a little bit and he was starting to go out there publicly and say, this is wrong. I was actually working with the FBI. I was working with the CIA and helping our government. I wasn't colluding at all. And that was enough to prompt officials at the FBI to say, wait a minute, Carter Page is out there in the public media saying he worked for the CIA. Let's go back to the CIA and check on that. And so they did. They tasked Kevin Kleinsmith to reach out to the CIA and say, hey, was Carter Page a contact for you? The CIA comes back and they said, yes, he was. And he took that email and he changed it to say Carter Page was not an asset for the CIA. Now, obviously, he's already pled guilty to that. And there's always been this long-standing question of why Kevin Kleinsmith would do that. And a lot of people have speculated, and I have to agree with them, that it doesn't make sense unless there was somebody standing over his shoulder that said, this is okay, you're going to be fine, you're not at risk. Because when he changed that email, you had Special Counsel Mueller you know, the biggest investigation in history, pretty much, you know, locked and loaded. They were just getting going. I mean, there's no way that Kevin Kleinsmith could have looked at that and said, yeah, nobody's ever going to find this, right? If I change this email, nobody's ever going to come back and, and fact check me. Nobody's going to find out that Carter Page was a CIA asset. It's such a black and white lie that is so easily um, debunked that it just doesn't make sense that he would risk his career without any cover. And apparently that's what he did. Now we're going to have to find out whether somebody actually tasked him or not, but that is one more data point that makes the fourth FISA warrant just very, very unusual. And the reason that he changed that email is because they didn't have any evidence to really, um, to get this warrant. And obviously if they had disclosed the FISA court, that Carter page, was a contact with the CIA, well, that explains any connections or contacts that Page ever had with Russia. And that would have been enough to destroy the FISA warrants right there. So obviously, Kleinsmith changed that email. Um, let's see what else we have here. I do want to point this out as well. So we talked about the 17 material errors and omissions on IG Horowitz report. There's been subsequent public reporting about other work that IG Horowitz has done on FISA warrants in general. And this reporting has been very confusing for people that haven't looked into the nuances of it. Because what the public reporting would suggest is that Horowitz has looked at a bunch of other FISA warrants in unrelated cases, and he found a bunch of errors. And that would draw an implication that Carter Page was just one in a million, right? Oh, everybody, you know, they're were, they were doing this for everybody. And that's not true. Because once you actually read through the documents and read through what Horowitz found, he's not finding material errors. Yes, he's finding typographical errors. He's finding issues with the Woods file. But more often than not, he is not calling them material errors, or he's not making a determination of whether it's material to that case or material to that FISA warrant. So that's very, very different from finding 17 
material errors in just the four card page warrants. I would say the card page warrants are unusually um, uh, corrupted. They're not, they're not the same as everybody else, all the other FISA warrants. They're unusually bad. Um, so I wanted to make that point because I, I see that get hung up a lot out there as well. Uh, one other data point. I want to point this one out. This has not been talked about enough. Ivan Vorontsov is a subsource, subsource supposedly for Igor Danchenko. Now, um, I say supposedly because all the subsources have declined, have declared under oath that they were not sources for this dossier. And once you actually look at the subsources, you realize these are not people in any position whatsoever to have intelligence value, right? They are not political operatives. They're not in any type of position to gain the information that's being attributed to them. Uh, Vronsov, you know, he runs kind of this finance website. Um, you know, I don't have a great sense of, of, you know, what type of access he might have. I think, it, you know, it's worth to point out he was apparently in the Spazzo house, which is the ambassador's residence. And he alleged in an affidavit that in June 2016, he was pulled out of the Spazzo house by FBI agents to interview him about Igor Danchenko. Now, I didn't misspeak. He wrote it was June 2016. A lot of us believe that might be an error. That might be a typo, and it might be June 2017. June 2016 would leave a lot of people scratching their heads. But let's say it's June 2017. That's still before the fourth FISA warrant is uh, applied for on June 29th. And that's another opportunity for the FBI to stop. And they don't. Um, we don't have the 302 yet. We don't know exactly what um, Bronsoff would have told them about Danchenko. But I feel comfortable in saying that it would not be, um, it would be, it would be exculpatory for Carter Page. It would not go to bolster Danchenko. I feel confident in saying that. So, I mean, there's a few data points there that I've thrown out there. Um, Fourth FISA warrant, there's just no excuse. There's no, there's no justification. As I said earlier, this was in the news media by that point. By April 2017, Carter Page is out there saying, you know, I work for the CIA. You know, I didn't do this. And they still went out there and got another FISA warrant against Carter Page. While, while he was out there, knowing that he was being spied on, they went and got another warrant on him. So it's just incredible. And you think about the FISA court and what the purpose is, it's supposed to fight terrorism, right? I mean, this is, um, you know, an ex parte court, you know, it's this warrant. You can't defend against it. You don't know what's happening. They just go out there. And then once they get the, this FISA warrant, they're going to do whatever they want. If they want to wiretap you, they're going to do it. Margo Cleveland pointed out today, um, a note that we saw in the Sussman trial exhibits where apparently they intercepted Steve Bannon talking to Carter Page because they had a FISA warrant on Carter Page. And it's just incredible that our government could do this to Carter Page and they're getting away with it so far. But I mean, the point of, of this podcast and what I'm, I'm raising is I don't see 
how Durham could let it all go. And as I've said a few times now, we don't have the explicit memo going to Jim Comey, but I would be surprised if it doesn't exist. I would be surprised if nobody's going to come forward and testify, you know, I told the FBI leadership that this didn't lead anywhere. And they said, go and do it anyway. And, and we saw, we did see a little bit of that in the Alpha Bank related allegations where the field agents were saying, this is garbage immediately. This is totally garbage. You know, there's no merit to this allegation whatsoever. And the FBI leadership pushed to continue the investigation. And I think we're going to find a lot more of that. And hopefully John Durham can make a case and bring criminal charges. So I think that's enough for tonight. Um, We'll see what John Durham does. I, you know, I would like to think he's going to bring criminal charges around this last FISA warrant or next couple of weeks, but it is possible that he files a conspiracy charge and that might be another year or two. And it's also possible John Durham doesn't do anything against the FBI. I can't predict that. I try not to make predictions. Um, I think generally speaking, there's going to be more indictments and we'll just have to see what happens. So I'll plan on doing a few more of these podcasts. Uh, obviously, I'm going to do a few more articles. I have some FISA warrants that are going to, or excuse me, I'm going to have some FOIAs that are coming back pretty soon. So I'm going to write those up. Um, hopefully next week, actually, I'm getting a really important one. So stay tuned for that. And I appreciate everybody staying this long. And I hope everybody has a good night. Hey, what's going on, folks? Sundead Foya here. Going to give a quick update and then going to talk about the two most common questions that I get asked. And those relate to Seth Rich and Joseph Mifsud. Before we get there, um, quick update. Obviously, it's Friday night. I hope everybody's having a good weekend. Um, so my week, I put in a bunch of FOIAs to the FBI. I want to say it was 11 or 12. And that was generated basically through the trial exhibits from the Sussman case. So I was able to dig through those. And obviously we have a, a new list of names of people at the FBI. And, you know, obviously we know, we know they were covering the alpha story and with them being related to cyber element. Um, I went ahead and submitted some inquiries related to the DNC hack as well, um, because that is another important piece that we got. And Epic times has report on this, but completely blows my mind that on October 7th, 2016, the FBI, excuse me, the U.S. government formally attributed the DNC hacks to Russia. And what these emails show unequivocally is that the FBI and the U.S. government, for that matter, did not have any evidence from CrowdStrike when they made that attribution. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's something that we're learning six years later. Nobody's ever talked about it in testimony. Nobody's ever volunteered that. We haven't heard that before. I think everybody had the assumption that, you know, 
uh, CrowdStrike did the initial analysis. You know, they didn't provide the servers to the to the FBI, but they provided some server images, and the FBI took that information and you know took it across all the elements of the government, and they did attribution to Russia, basically incorporating that um, body of work. And that's not what happened. Um, so it remains an open question now what our government used to attribute the hack of the DNC. And with that evidence not coming through CrowdStrike, that's the question. I mean, where did it come from? What analysis did they use uh, to make that analysis? And we're going to have to see. I mean, I have a few ideas. I've shared them on Twitter. Um, I think I, I might do another podcast or maybe a, an article kind of writing that up. Um, so put a pin in that. Um, like I said, FBI FOIs are out there. Haven't had a whole lot of luck with them, so I don't want to overpromise anything. Um, it could be a very long time before we see anything from those, but that's kind of the process that you follow. I mean, it's going to be a long time and you have to have patience and just wait for stuff to come. And with that in mind, I mean, the other update, and I've mentioned this recently, I'm going to start to get FOIAs processed at DARPA. And my first FOIA is supposed to be processed on June 15th. So that's the middle of next week. It is for Angelos Karamitis and emails going to or from David Dagan, Rodney Joffe. Uh, I think I have Glenn Simpson and John Podesta in there, just kind of random, just trying to just kind of fish a little bit. Now I put that back, I put that FOIA in back in January. So at the time, I foolishly uh, was underplaying the role of Manos and Tanakakis. I did not have a full understanding that he was going to be a key player in this, uh, largely due to some thinking that we had at the time. Um, we thought maybe he was more of an innocent bystander kind of guy, and I, I don't know if I agree with that assessment anymore. So uh, not good on my part. <laughs> I should have included Manos in that initial FOIA. I think I did go back and FOIA Manos, and Karaminas, but that's going to be a few few more weeks down the road before we get anything like that. Um, so that FOIA will come back next week, supposedly. Uh, remains to be seen whether there's a delay. I've not FOIA'd DARPA before, so there could be a delay. Um, but hopefully, after five months, they're going to be true to the word and they'll process that FOIA. So that's going to be really, really interesting. Um, what else? So I'm working on a kind of a write-up of Rodney Joffe. Nothing earth-shattering at all, but um, a lot of people have been asking, is Rodney Joffe next? Um, I don't think I necessarily agree with that, so I'm going to lay out a little bit of reasoning why I don't see an imminent indictment coming for Rodney Joffe. And uh, that will probably come out tomorrow. And then I think another question that I've been getting over the last week is like, you know, hey, is Russiagate done? Is John Durham just going to write a report now? And no, that is not my opinion. Um, I do see an indictment coming for Rodney Joffe. Obviously, he has the Danchenko trial coming up in a couple months. And I see a lot more. And I'm, I'm much further out there on a limb with that. Um, a lot of the other really, really smart people that I talk to um, and a lot of the great Russiagate sleuths they are not in the same boat as me on this, I don't believe. But at this point, I think there's going to be a substantial number of indictments. And that's largely on intuition. 
Um, but looking at the, the corpus of evidence that we have now and the body of emails that we've obtained, I think there's a substantial number of indictments and it's not just going to be the private side, you know, people like, you know, Glenn Simpson and maybe some Clinton operatives and Rodney Joffe, all that is fair game. I think there's going to be some activity there. Um, but I, I really believe there are going to be substanti- substantial indictments at the FBI and we'll have to see what else. I mean, there could be elements of the Obama administration. Um, there could be some other players as well. And I see a lot of people, I mean, still in the mode of, oh, Durham lost Sussman. You know, he's, <laughs> I don't know, you know, whole, whole assortment of comments denigrating John Durham, which is unfortunate. I mean, you have to be patient with this stuff. John Durham has only been doing this for three years. And people say, well, he's been doing it for three years. And that's, you know, the truth is that's not all that long, especially when he lost a year with COVID. So it is what it is. And obviously we've seen other investigations like the January 6th investigation and they've thrown out a million subpoenas and they've gotten all these documents and stuff lying around. Uh, yeah, it can be frustrating, but Durham's uh, got a small team. He's a little bit more careful than the January 6th committee is with their subpoenas. Uh, he recognizes the damage that even subpoenaing somebody can do. Um, he's talked about that before. So yes, there are some valid criticisms of what Durham has done. Um, failing to pierce the privilege of Fusion GPS, that's fair game. Um, maybe he was hoping that the civil case with Apple Bank was going to pierce that privilege and John, and Durham would be able to piggyback on that. Um, hopefully that's not what he was thinking, but maybe that is. Um, and I mean, yeah, there's a few valid criticisms, uh, not moving fast enough on challenging that privilege. And then um, some of the presentation for the Sussman trials, especially early on, could have been improved a little bit. Um, so it is what it is. We've talked about that extensively. Uh, I don't think I'll reference that anymore. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think that's it. So those are the updates for this week. I'm going to continue continue to put in some more FOIAs. I have a few other ideas to put in this weekend. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the topic for tonight. Um, And I'll apologize in advance. I'm not even going to go into a whole great amount of detail on these because we've, we've really beat these topics up extensively. I mean, not, not even just me. I mean, Hans and everybody else out there, they've covered this so much. And if you're really interested in this and you want more information, go through the Twitter. I mean, use the advanced search feature um, or on the profile. I think you can search for tweets now and plug in whatever term you're, you're interested in. If it's MythSuit, if it's Seth Rich, and they have some detailed answers out there and you can certainly go back and, and find them. Um, but if maybe you're new uh, to the corner, or maybe you just read you know Papadopoulos' book and you're curious. So let's start with Joseph MythSuit. Now, Mifsud is a Maltese academic, and basically a nexus to this entire story is that um, there's kind of a weird organization out there that Papadopoulos worked for, and Papadopoulos ended up writing a book. And in that book, he basically suggested that Mifsud um, was a member or an affiliation with um, intelligence agencies, Western intelligence agencies, and they basically entrapped him by using Mifsud to plant the idea of dirt on Hillary Clinton. 
And there's a lot of reasons why that really doesn't pass muster. Um, so first of all, I mean, Mifsud is kind of a, he, he actually has a history of fraud. There's at least one university where he left um, with a lot of issues around his expense reports. He was basically um, committing a little bit of fraud and charging a lot of personal expenses to the university. Um, so right there, I mean, that's not going to be your ideal intelligence operative. If you want to task somebody that can be, um, that is vulnerable to being bought off with money. I mean, that's, that's a bad start. I mean, you're not going to trust them. So how much information are you going to give them? Right. Um, and then, I mean, the whole story that the whole idea that they had to plant this idea with Papadopoulos, I mean, there was a fair amount of speculation at the time that um, Russia had hacked Hillary's server and Russia was going to have all these emails. China, I think, was also mentioned out there. And so there's a lot of speculation. Obviously, there was a piece on Fox News um, a couple weeks after his meeting with Misud where they were talking about Russia leaking uh, Hillary's email. So, I mean, there's not a whole lot there. I mean, if you're going to task somebody, right? If Mifsud was really an intelligence asset, you would think there'd be something a little bit, a uh, little bit bigger. I mean, something a little bit more significant. Um, and then the idea that he's like a, a confidential human source or, or something of that nature. Um, and he was going to, you know, he's providing intelligence to somebody. I mean, compare him to somebody like Stefan Halper and Stefan Halper, as we see him, um, before he's officially CHS, even, you know, he's moving through different characters of the Trump campaign. You know, he's in contact with Papadopoulos. He's in contact with Carter Page. He's in contact with other people. And he's basically working his way around. And when he um, speaks to somebody, sure enough, he's working his way to, to get connected to other members. And at one point, they even uh, the Trump campaign was even talking about bringing him onto the campaign because... He was so successful in building those relationships. And that's really what you would expect to see with an intelligence asset. Now, Misud, as far as we know, I mean, he didn't reach out to Papadopoulos and say, hey, connect me to campaign manager or, hey, can I come to this campaign event or anything like that? And that's what you would expect to see. I mean, um, you know, if you're going to employ an asset like that, you're going to get the most value out of them, especially when he has a relationship with Papadopoulos. I mean, there's an in right there. Um, and we didn't see any of that. Um, now, as it happens, um, I won't share his name because I, I don't know how much attention he wants on it, but we know at least one person that has kind of reached out to people connected to Misud. And I mean, based on that conversation, I mean, there's, there's just nothing that suggests he is anything other than um, an innocent guy who has had his life ruined. Now, Papadopoulos is not alone in being responsible for that. The Mueller team was, was squeezing Papadopoulos hard. They wanted to hear something about Russia, and Papadopoulos obliged them. And, I mean, between some of the interviews and... Uh, the book, I mean, Papadopoulos had a Russian dependent on. And you can recall, I mean, some of the early stuff about Papadopoulos, um, I think his wife compared him, he was going to be the the John Dean of this, right? Like he was going to flip and get everybody up. And it's like, well, <laughs> uh, the truth is, I mean, Papadopoulos never 
was never a key player in the campaign. You know, he never actually talked to any Russians. You can go through the book. I mean, yeah, it's a well-written book, and I don't blame anybody for having questions about Misud. When I read the book, I was in the same boat. I, I was certainly asking those questions, and I know a lot of other people in the corner, a lot of other researchers gave that a, a lot of merit at the time because it, it did make logical sense. But as time has gone on and passed by, I mean, there's just nothing there. And uh, obviously we have that story, allegedly, that Barr and Durham flew out to Italy and collected a couple of cell phones. Um, and if they had, I mean, if there's anything damning on those cell phones, if that story is true, I'm pretty confident we would have seen something by now. I mean, that was that was quite a long time ago at this point. Um, so, as I said, I mean, obviously that's not an incredibly detailed answer, but if you guys want to learn more, I mean, there's some tweets out there. It's, it's a question that comes up over and over and over. And a lot of times, even when we answer it fully and, and give you um, or give the person a detailed answer, it ends up not satisfying them. <laughs> and then the, and then we get a lot of the same questions from the same people, even when we answer it. And that's, that's a source of frustration because there's a lot of other stuff that's going on in Russiagate. I mean, we're, we're developing a lot of new information over the last year and the last two years that merits a lot more of our attention than Joseph Mifsud, which obviously is not developed at all in the last six years. And if there was something there, I'm, I'm fully confident that something would have developed by now. So that's where I'm going to leave it with Mifsud. Now, Seth Rich is a little bit more complicated. Um, this is a personal source of frustration. So I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but anytime, now I'm a little bit further out there on this than some of the other sleuths, but I am fully on board or at least substantially on board with the DNC hack being a false flag operation. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying that the hack itself was fake or anything like that, but between the hack and the dissemination of those files to WikiLeaks, I do believe there is something wrong there. I believe we are going to find out um, that there was some malicious actors from the Clinton campaign or in that world that was doing something wrong. I, I fully believe that. That is not synonymous with Seth Rich having a role in any type of operation there. I mean, if you actually look at Seth Rich's history, I mean, he's yes, he's kind of in the IT side at the DNC, but that doesn't say much. I mean, there's no reason that they would need him for anything. I mean, you have Sussman running the DNC investigation. Um, there's nothing that that would really suggest that Seth Rich would be the go-to person of, you know, hey, we want you to be the, you know, we want you to interface with everybody. We want you to kind of facilitate the transfer of these files. Like, that's not who they would go to. There's a lot of names that we have, and I want to be really careful because I, you know, obviously I have some potential risk if I start naming people incorrectly, and, and it's not my intent to malign anybody um, wrongly either. So I'm not going to name names, but there are some out there that we know are in the picture now uh, that would be much more likely than Seth Rich to facilitate any type of false flag operation. So um, if you actually look at the, the horrific incident that happened to him and my God, I mean, the poor guy, you know, he was out at a bar, 
he was walking home. It was 4 a.m. in the morning and he was shot. And you have to think about his family. And I, I look at the old stories from Fox News and you know, everything that just blew that up into a huge narrative. And you have to think about his family. I mean, I, I hope none of you know a murder victim or any families of murder victims. It is not easy. Uh, unfortunately, I, I know several. And, it, you know, that is not, I, I, I cannot imagine seeing those stories on the news and just having that reminder out there every single day and then you, having it used. I mean, Assange was out there um, kind of adding fuel to that fire with no regard to Seth Rich's family. I, I think that's disgusting. And my take on that is Assange was just trying to build up uh, a narrative, trying to build up more attention to himself and WikiLeaks. And I think it's disgusting. Um, you know, Assange may have alluded to Seth Rich being the source at various times. I don't think, I don't think Assange knows who leaked the files to WikiLeaks. If you want to know the truth, I think whoever Guccifer is, whoever that persona is or, or whoever is involved in that probably reached out to WikiLeaks anonymously, um, provided a few emails that um, WikiLeaks could verify. WikiLeaks provided a secure file transfer. And then these hackers anonymously uploaded the files. That's what I think happened. I don't think Assange has any clue who gave him the files. So, you know, it's just disgusting to, to throw that on to Seth Rich. And you know what? If it comes out that Seth Rich had some involvement, I'll, I'll gladly eat crow. You guys can rub it in my face all day long. Um, but there's no information that has developed at all. And, you know, again, as it relates to a false flag operation, I see again and again, anytime I post anything, Seth Rich, right? People posting Seth Rich, Seth Rich. And then people make the point about the transfer spe speeds. You know, that body of evidence was refuted uh, years ago. You can go back and read it. Now, it was, it was interesting at the time. I think it's still interesting um, about the internal transfer speeds being uh, too fast, I think, for a Wi-Fi connection was the allegation. Um, subsequent analysis showed that's not necessarily true. And again, I'm fully on board with there being you know, more to the story. I think there is something wrong there um, with the sensors of CrowdStrike not picking up the exfiltration that suggests to me that the files were exfiltrated on a system not monitored by CrowdStrike. And for somebody to know which systems are or are not monitored by CrowdStrike or to have access um, to exfiltrate them when the sensors are not uh, deployed, that suggests an insider to me. So, you know, I, I'm not against the idea of there being something wrong with the transfer speeds but that is not synonymous with Seth Rich. And, and that's a source of tremendous frustration for me. So um, going back to the horrible incident, I mean, with Seth Rich, obviously, you know, he shot twice, four o'clock in the morning. He didn't die right away. I mean, there was no finishing shot. Yes, he wasn't robbed, um, you know, or anything. He wasn't robbed or anything. So the, kind of rules out robbery in the minds of some people. 
but he also wasn't finished off while he was lying there helpless either. And that suggests, obviously, it's not an assassination attempt. Now, I just came back from Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, and I was out on the street walking around about uh, 8 a.m. on a Sunday, and I have to tell you, I was worried. I was a little bit worried. I was walking around, and there was a just a, an enormous number of people out on the street at 8 o'clock in the morning, and people were eyeing me up. And I could tell, I mean, I think they were thinking about mugging me. And <laughs> there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. There's street fights. There was rampant drug use, just openly, just people using drugs. Uh, people passed out all over the sidewalk. It's not a safe environment. And you don't have to have a good reason amidst all that insanity uh, for somebody to be murdered. I mean, that's what happens in crazy cities when you have criminals just running around. You know, obviously people aren't really going to jail anymore if they have substance abuse issues and things of that nature. There's a lot of reasons um, or there's a lot of other opportunities, I think, four o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that that's just not the time like an assassin would be out there waiting for Seth Rich. Like, I, I don't buy that. I think it's much more likely it was a random person out there or a couple random people. And, you know, I bet there's no reason at all. You know, he's a white guy. You know, I don't want to get racial into it, but he stands out. He stands out at four o'clock in the morning. Um, so I don't know, guys. That, that's about it. Um, that covers Seth Rich. That covers Joseph Mifsud. Um, is what it is. I mean, don't walk home at four o'clock in the morning in major cities. It, it's dangerous. <laughs> Take an Uber. Um, don't get so drunk that you lose control of your, your faculties. Um, so with that, I'm going to leave it here. And I hope everybody has a good weekend. I'm going to do a few more podcasts. I I think there's some interest in talking about FOIAs and the FOIA process itself. Um, not from a Russiagate angle, but I'm putting together a few exercises where um, I can walk people through how to do a FOIA and some of the common exemptions or what to kind of look for. They're not hard. The initial FOIA is not hard at all. What becomes challenging is figuring out where to direct your information or um, kind of some of the techniques of how to get some of the information or handle exemptions. Um, exemptions can be a little bit challenging and sort of knowing when to push back or when to narrow down your request, I think is, is pretty important too. Um, other other interests, people were kind of interest, interested in a little bit, uh, knowing a little bit more about how we sleuth and, and what we do and some of our techniques. So uh, I put together a little bit of a, a standard playbook and I think I can go through it and build a few exercises so that we can do it together. So I'll, I'll share a few source documents and we'll just do a few exercises together and you'll be able to kind of reverse engineer or follow along with exactly what we do. And there's, you know, four or five standard steps. I mean, anytime I get a new name or, or a new document um, or something like that, I mean, there's, there's five things I think that I do every single time. And then, that covers, I mean, 90% of what I do. Um, 
occasionally there's there's a few other techniques, but um, I can give you guys kind of a standard playbook. So I think that'll be a podcast that I do with an associated listing of, of source documents to kind of work through. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll continue to do some other Rushgate podcasts. Uh, let me know what you guys are interested in. I'm happy to cover anything really. And uh, obviously we'll stand by for these Karamitis FOIA documents. Should be really interesting. So with that, I'll end it here. Hope everybody has a good weekend. Hey, what's going on, folks? It's Undead Foya. Thought I'd do a short podcast today about Georgia Tech. I've seen a lot of questions over the last couple of months asking why some of us are pursuing documents from Georgia Tech or asking what relevancy Georgia Tech has to Russiagate. And there's a lot of confusion out there. And part of the issue is broadcast media, I don't think, has done a single story on Georgia Tech so far. Um, so until they catch up, I, I would highly recommend going back and reading articles by Margot Cleveland. She's been doing a fantastic job, obviously getting a lot of documents from Georgia Tech, uh, but writing them up as well. So there's just a whole host of information on finds that we've gotten from FOIA documents. And I would strongly encourage, I mean, if you still have questions, go back through your articles and see what we've been finding because it's really important. Um, you might recall, depending on how closely you've been following Russiagate, in the indictment of Michael Sussman, there was two researchers that were alluded to, Researcher 1 and Researcher 2. Now, Researcher 1 is Manos Antonikakis. He is a computer science professor at Georgia Tech. Researcher 2 is David Dagan. He is also a computer science research, or computer science instructor at Georgia Tech. And um, a lot of discussion of them at the Sussman trial. I think we found out right around the, the start of the trial that David Dagan was fully immunized in July 2021. So he is providing information to Special Counsel Durham. And Manos and Tanakakis, we've gotten a lot of FOIA documents. And at least last summer, uh, he was noted to be a witness to certain events. Uh, but there are also some more recent filings in which uh, Manos was actually named as part of the joint venture conspiracy. So a little bit unclear exactly where Manos fits into it. I think it's important or worthwhile to point out in some of the documents that we've gotten, they date back to the indictment days of Michael Sussman. And uh, Manos actually produced a summary of that for his lawyer that we got through FOIA documents. And he felt like he was taken out of context. And I think that's important to point out. And, um, you know, We'll see how it shakes out at the end of the day. Right now, he feels like he was taken out of context in the indictment and um, feels like he did not have a substantial role in the allegations as they were presented. But we've got a lot of other FOIA documents as well. So I just want to give like a brief overview and cover a few points of what we've seen. But again, strongly encourage you to go back to Mark Cleveland's documents um, and write-ups of different uh, finds that we've gotten. So with that, uh, let's start with a grand jury subpoena. And this is something that I obtained through FOIA. 
And this is a grand jury subpoena to Georgia Tech and related entities. This is dated July 14th, 2021. And if you recall, the indictment of Sussman was a few months after this. So this is as Durham was kind of putting this case together still. So we'll just read this document together. And this is actually a week before David Dagan was immunized, but this is what the subpoena says. It says, for the period from January 1, 2016 to the present, provide all documents, records, communications, and information that are maintained on or within any Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Research Institute, Georgia Tech Research Corporation systems, facilities, or properties, and are accessible by or within the possession, custody, control of David Dagan, and concern, involve, relate to, or reflect, number one, allegations, including supporting data, of a purported secret communications channel between the Trump Organization, Spectrum Health, and the Russian bank, Alpha Bank. Number two, allegations, including supporting data, of the purported presence or use of Russian-made Yoda phones by or in the vicinity of Donald Trump or individuals affiliated with Donald Trump. And B, point number two on this grand jury subpoena is, for the period January 1, 2016 to the present, all documents, records, and information reflecting to work, communications, or activities, including work, communications, or activities conducted under or pursuant to contracts with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, i.e. DARPA, conducted at or by the Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute and or Georgia Tech Research Corporation, relating to or involving subject matter set forth in items A1 and A2 above. So there you go. So basically they sent the subpoena and they're looking for anything within Georgia Tech systems uh, relating to these allegations. So this was a subpoena to Georgia Tech. And, and right there we see where Georgia Tech becomes relevant because they have all these documents. They obviously employ two of the researchers that are subject to um, a lot of the investigation efforts on Alpha Bank. And that's where they're going to be relevant. Now, there's somebody else that is somewhat in the picture. And his name is uh, Angelos Karamidas. Angelos Karamidas was at DARPA in 2016 and 2017. And then in 2018, he actually joined Georgia Tech, uh, Georgia Tech, I should say. It's not Georgia Tech University. Um, so we actually know he's got some relevant information. We've seen some FOIA documents to that extent. And he also engaged a lawyer um, same lawyer as Anton Kakas, as it happens, uh, to defend some of his interests or to flush out, you know, what documents are being obtained from him. So he's kind of like an ancillary character right now. We don't know how relevant he's going to be. Uh, he was obviously at DARPA in 2016, 2017. DARPA is just a just an absolute mess. It, it's really unclear. Um, to what extent contracts were abused knowingly at DARPA, or if it's just a, a you know situation where everybody's going to claim ignorance. Uh, I would point out, I mean, one of the big discrepancies right now, one of the FOIA documents that we got was actually from Manos Antonikakis, where he was describing to people at Georgia Tech 
a conversation that he had with Durham's team. And in this conversation, Durham's team had asked him if they if he felt it was appropriate for DARPA to task him to look at Guccifer 2.0. And that's really the first instance where we were sure uh, that Manos and David Dagan, we found out later, had actually provided work product in relation to the DNC hack, which is, you know, obviously mind-blowing. I mean, the idea that uh, you could come across one group of researchers that are going to be tied to the Alpha Bank server allegations and then find out they actually have some relevancy, some ties to the hack of the DNC. That, that's highly coincidental. If that is a coincidence, that's highly coincidental. You would not expect that normally. So there's two, there's actually two matters that we know of that are highly relevant to this investigation. One is the alpha server allegations. And number two is they did provide work product to special counsel Mueller. And I, I'm not misspeaking there. I'm not, I'm not suggesting John Durham. I'm saying they provide a work product to special counsel Mueller uh, related to the hack of the DNC. And we know that because I FOIA'd the attorney general's office of Georgia who were representing Georgia tech's interest at one point. And I, I don't have a full understanding of um, what that relationship was going to be. I, I think it fell through where they decided not to pursue it. So, um, you know, not going to make any, uh, uh, I don't want to say anything too firmly on that because it's a little bit vague to me. I, I don't have a full understanding of it. But anyway, there was somebody at the attorney general's office that had documents and I knew that. So I FOIA'd them and I, I got my hands on some pretty interesting documents uh, right around the time that David Dagan was getting immunized. And in this, uh, it was actually the attorney, the representative of David Dagan emailing uh, somebody from the attorney general's office um, stating that he felt there were some relevant documents. And in that um, email, we actually saw references to a white paper that was done on the hack of the DNC that was provided to the Department of Justice. Um, we saw some other work related to different domains that was apparently relevant, as well as crypto transactions um, and some work on both Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. So the importance of those documents is still unclear. We don't know if they form the basis of attribution. We don't know exactly when they were done. Um, so I don't want to put a pin in that right now, but um, it, it's something to keep in mind as we move forward. So obviously two investigations, uh, the Alpha Bank and the hack of the DNC, they intermingle a little bit, but that's the relevancy of Georgia Tech. Um, as it happens, I mean, Georgia Tech has decided to pay the legal costs, the legal representation fees of Manos and Tanakakis and David Dagan and Angelos Karamitis. And that's uh, an article that I wrote up last week. I, I actually FOIA Georgia Tech and got copies of the invoices through February. Um, obviously, that's several months ago at this point. I'm, I'm waiting to put in another FOIA to get the more recent document or the more recent legal invoices. But through February, they had paid $490,000 primarily for David Dagan, but a substantial amount for Manos as well. And then I think the amount for Karaminas was actually written off, but um, very, very interesting. Uh, Don't know what to make of it yet. Uh, I have some questions out to Georgia Tech because 
I want to find out what the rationale is. I mean, you think about when an employer is going to pay the legal cost of an employee. And if it's not negligence, I mean, you, you're thinking about situations where uh, there was work done that was sanctioned by the employer, right? Um, and the performance of their assigned duties, uh, they did something and then the employer might pick up some legal fees. But when an employee goes outside of their mandate, when they um, abuse their responsibilities to an excessive level, employers don't typically pick up those costs. Um, not in my experience anyway. So wait and get some more answers from Georgia Tech. I, I would really like to hear the rationale of why they're paying you know, half a million dollars so far and, and potentially a lot more than that is before the investigation wraps up. So I think I hit a few of the major points. Um, I don't want to dig into it too far. Again, Margot Cleveland at the Federalist. Um, you can Google it easy enough. You can always find information. So when I see a lot of those comments out there, you know, asking, you know, what's the relevancy of Georgia Tech or, you know, why are they involved? I mean, you can just Google that, right? So don't, you know, if you're really interested in this stuff, you know, don't just be um, out there confused, like Google it. <laughs> there, there's plenty of documents. Um, I know Margo's Cleveland's will pop up. So definitely check those out. Um, I have a lot of FOIA documents that we've gotten from Georgia Tech out there in a link tree. And you can find that on my Twitter fo- profile. And basically, I, I haven't updated it in a month or so, but there's thousands of pages of documents that we've gotten. Um, there, there probably are a few hundred pages I should throw up there. But um, between Georgia Tech and the Attorney General's Office at Georgia, there's a lot of stuff to read. Um, some of it is uh, duplicates, which is unfortunate, but um, still a lot of really, really interesting documents out there. So I think I hit all the major points. If you have any questions, go ahead and uh, DM me or, or reach out. I'm happy to take a shot at them. Um, maybe I'll do another podcast and get a lot of the questions, um, and I can hit them all at once. So hope everybody's having a good weekend, and I will see you next time. Hey, what's going on, folks? It's Undead for you. Thought I would try to re-record a podcast that I had a couple weeks ago. I sent it out, and I realized the microphone was off. There's no audio on it, so I apologize for that. Thought I would try to give that a shot, and I kind of owe you an update as well. So, continue to put in FOIAs over the last couple weeks. Um, there's some other developments I'll hint at. I don't think I can really get into details, but... Um, suffice to say, I mean, I'm still pushing forward on, on pursuing documents and trying to get some answers. And I have some stuff planned out over the next couple of weeks. I think that'll be pretty interesting. I, um, I can't make any promises of, over what might develop, but um, taking a more active role in sort of this, I don't know if you want to call it an investigation, but whatever we're doing, um, continuing to push forward. So, Next up, we hope to have a few more developments and 
we'll see what comes. So on the FOIA front, I have a couple more FOIAs at Georgia Tech. Um, I think there's one or two more I might submit, but other than that, I, I feel like we've kind of run that well dry. I don't think there's too much more um, that we might discover. So I'm going to try to get a few more legal invoices. I think that was kind of the big thing I had a couple weeks ago where it looks like Georgia Tech is paying about $490,000 so far uh, for Manos and Tanakakis, David Dagan, and Angelos Karamitis and their legal costs. And those invoices were only through February. So um, I'm on the lookout for additional invoices. I want to see how much more they've paid over the last couple months. I uh, expect that within the next couple weeks. I think I'd be surprised uh, if they didn't submit the legal invoices by mid-July. So we'll see what comes with that. Um, still taking a look at a few few other items around Rodney Joffe and some items we learned at the Sussman trial. Uh, can't make any promises there, obviously, but... Um, that's sort of the update. So DARPA owed me documents um, on June 15th. And obviously, you know, it's a couple weeks later. And what happened was I, I basically reached out after June 15th. And they said, <laughs> yeah, we're still working on it. And they gave me a new estimate of completion on this first FOIA of December 30th, which is just ridiculous. So I put that FOIA in. January 22nd of this year. And they gave me an estimate for date of completion of June 15th. And sure enough, June 15th went by and no documents. <laughs> so pretty frustrating. I, I still have maybe a dozen other FOIAs at DARPA. And I have to believe they're going to follow the same pattern. So We'll see what happens. I, I don't know if I'll actually get the documents in December. Um, I kind of hinted at it earlier, but there's some other things I'm going to pursue on that front to try to get some of those documents. So we'll see. Uh, going back to the topic of this podcast, talking about potential of additional indictments. And this is sort of in response to a Substack that I saw a couple weeks ago now. Uh, from Emerald Robinson. And basically she said something to the fact, and I, I hate to paraphrase, but that's what I'll try to do. Um, something to the fact that John Durham, you know, played everybody and, uh, you know, he, he's all done, nothing's coming. And basically a lot of people jumped on that. And I, I see it a lot in my comments and DMs where people are just losing all hope and, sort of the bandwagon effect, right? I mean, if Sussman was convicted, everybody would be all excited about, you know, a case and additional indictments and yada, yada. And everybody loses faith based on the, the turning of one trial. I thought Durham did pretty good at the trial. Now he made some mistakes and we've covered those already, so I'm not going to get into them. But I, I give John Durham a lot of credit. He's continuing to work. Um, he has a lot of resistance in front of him, especially now with, under the Biden administration. But he's got the biggest case that we have ever seen as a country. He's got to get documents and records from the FBI. He's looked at the CIA, uh, DNI, probably maybe the NSA, I, I don't know. Uh, certainly the Department of Defense and sub-agency of DARPA, those are huge players. And, and as we've learned over the last year, 
there's potentially a lot of documents that are held at the Department of Defense. And then he's got to get documents from potentially the Obama administration officials. He's got to get documents from the Clinton campaign. He's got to get documents from Ronnie Joffe. He's got to get documents from the researchers at Georgia Tech. He's got to get documents from potentially Ops Trust. And, you know, Ops Trust people are all over the world. And to go fight privilege all over the world, that's obviously going to be very tough. So as you're looking towards, you know, the size of this investigation, Durham's only been at this for three years. And one of those years, COVID uh, basically screwed everything up and basically nothing got done during COVID. So you're looking at two years and it's just not that much time. Um, Durham has to dot the I's and cross the T's. And he's not going to throw stuff out there like the January 6th commission, which I see a lot of comparisons to. And he's not going to, you know, he doesn't have the resources of Mueller. Now I'm a little bit um, unclear over how much he's being hamstrung by the Biden administration. Obviously they control his budget, but, you know, there's some political realities in that if Durham came out and said, hey, I need more resources and I'm not getting it, I feel like he could get anything he wants. So he's keeping the team close-knit, not a large team. We got the expenses, the financial statements of the last six months, um, a few weeks ago now, and he actually spent a little bit less money than he did in the six months prior. So his investigation is not expanding yet, right? He's not bringing on prosecutors. He's not apparently gearing up for massive prosecutions as of March. But I believe there are a significant number of additional indictments coming. And for full transparency, I've gone back and forth on this. So take it with a grain of salt. You know, if you want to blow up my comments or whatever with your negativity, that's fine. I'm, I'm not like a cheerleader guy. I've not been out there saying, oh yeah, well, indictments and you know, John Durham, this and whatever, like, that's not, it's really not what I've done. My mindset really changed when I went to the Sussman trial and I can't really point to anything in particular. There's a degree of intuition. Um, there's some other things that I know about, um, nothing major, um, that would seem to indicate there's a a larger case. Now, is it going to go to the FBI? That's one point I've, I've definitely flipped back and forth on. If you had asked me a year ago, I think I would have said that I would have expected indictments around the FISA applications. And I would have said, you know, maybe three to five indictments and just basically people processing the FOIAs and people who would have known about the Danchenko interviews, perhaps, and things of that nature. And that's really what I thought. I wasn't thinking like a conspiracy charge or anything. I was thinking, you know, the process around the FOIA, or excuse me, the FISA applications, I thought there would be a couple indictments. A few months ago, before the Sussman trial, I think I had trended away from that, and I was not necessarily expecting indictments at the FBI. Because there's a good point that's been made by Shipwreck and a few others. You have to overcome a presumption of good faith by the government actors. Now, FBI agents might have been overzealous and they could have said, well, uh, I had suspicions about this data that was coming in or this dossier that was coming in, but 
in my course of my responsibility as an FBI agent, I had to go run it down. And maybe I could have stopped and, and thought about it some more, but I really felt like it was worthwhile given the stakes. And you have to overcome that to cross the, the lexicon of, you know, is this malfeasance? Is this an overzealous agent? And is it criminal? And those are different definitions. So a few months ago, I was thinking, well, okay, that's going to be really hard to overcome, especially this many years later. And then I went to the Sussman trial. And there, there's a few data points that we got from the Sussman trial. There's definitely a few exhibits, and I want to talk about those. And, and the first one that I would point out is that we learned that a few FBI agents that testified are still under investigation. And I'm thinking specifically about Heidi. And Heidi had withheld exculpatory uh, surreptitious, surreptitiously recorded conversations uh, in connection with George Papadopoulos. He withheld those from the FISA court, which is a big no-no, right? And one thing I would say, if he is still under investigation, then others have to be under investigation because withholding those conversations, yeah, that's damning. Like, that's not good. But there's worse conduct that we know about. So if he's still under investigation, you know, who else is under investigation? One thing we learned, FBI leadership was really interested in this Alpha server. And we had that text message that came out and said, you know, everybody in the FBI leadership is real fired up about this Alpha server, uh, especially the director, something to that effect. And I think that is where Durham is going. So right now, I believe there will be additional indictments at the FBI. And I think people, I don't know if it's just this negativity or, or what the deal is, but everybody is kind of jumping on the idea that Durham portrayed the FBI as being duped. Well, that's very, you have to parse that out a little bit, okay? The FBI as an institution was definitely duped. They were given a phony dossier. They were given this phony Alpha Bank server information. And in that regard, the FBI as an institution of the United States was duped. And that's, that's correct. There's nothing wrong with Durham portraying them as being duped. But at the individual level, that's very different. If you look at somebody like Joe Pienka, was he duped? I don't know. Like, I, I can't say conclusively but there's some really damning elements that are adding up against Joe Pianca. And I, I think I wrote a piece about this a few weeks ago now. So Joe Pianca was one of the first people involved in Crossfire Hurricane. And he got the list of Trump associates that's been talked about during the Sussman trial. And he got this weird list that had all these email addresses and personal information of people like Carter Page. Paul Manafort was on there. Sergey Milian was on there. And... Uh, Richard Burt, and I think a couple others. And the key point being Sergey Milian, okay? Because he's going to be, he's going to be sort of a key actor as we go through this timeline real quick. October 12th, the New York field office reaches out and says, hey, I want to open a counterintelligence investigation into Sergey Milian. That becomes important because in December, Bruce Orr, is being interviewed by Joe Pianca. Joe Pianca is interviewing, interviewing Bruce Orr, and Bruce Orr tells him that Glenn Simpson has informed him that Sergey Milian is a source for the dossier. 
That does not get disclosed to the FISA court. In December 2016, Joe Pianca knew that this alleged source of the dossier, the FBI was just investigating him two months prior. They had a counterintelligence investigation into him, and they did not disclose that counterintelligence investigation into an alleged source for the dossier to the FISA court. Now, as you get into January, it, it seems clear that they learned that the primary subsource was actually, or excuse me, the primary source was Igor Danchenko. And then you, you get into a litany of issues around the Danchenko interviews because he was interviewed in January. He was interviewed in March, May, June, and going on it. He was interviewed through November. And every time was another opportunity where there's no question in my mind anymore that FBI leadership would have been very interested to hear what this guy was going to say. So when Danchenko goes in there and says, you know, this is all bar talk, you know, this was embellished. I didn't tell Steele this or that. Um, you know, I have no corroboration of any of this. They knew. There's no question in my mind that they knew. And I think Durham will get there. I think he will ultimately charge a conspiracy against the FBI leadership who perpetuated an investigation on false premises for political purposes. And there's no other way to look at it. Now, there's another data point that came out during the Sussman trial, and that's this issue around David Dagan. And the FBI leadership actually restricted field agents from learning the identity of Sussman, but also restricted them from going and interviewing David Dagan. And that, that's, that just blows my mind because we have this other data point that David Dagan later on provided work product to the Department of Justice and Special Counsel Mueller. And I'm not misspeaking there, Special Counsel Mueller. And he provided materials related to the DNC hack and Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear. And uh, it appears to be cryptocurrency transactions that may have some role in the purchase of servers and equipment that the GRU used in their hacking operations. And with him providing all that work product, did anybody ever go back and say, hey, uh, you were named as the author of this phony Alpha Bank white paper. I'd like to talk to you about that. That's the question that I have. He comes back in the picture later on, and these guys knew that he had allegedly authored this phony Alpha Bank white paper. Did they ever ask him about it? What did they ever do to follow up on this work paper that they had debunked completely? We're going to have to find out one day. And I really hope that the, the media will actually start picking that element up. That's something that Margot Cleveland and I have developed for the last seven months now, was that Manos and Tanakakis and David Dagan provided work product to Special Counsel Mueller. And I, I would really hope by now that, you know, Fox News or, or somebody like that would pick that story up because we need more attention on that. I mean, that as you start to develop this as a conspiracy and you start to analyze this, well, you got to throw that data point out there. I mean, if you, you're going to report the truth and you're going to report the story, that seems like a key data point. And I'm not like just making this stuff up. I have the FOIA documents, Margot Cleveland. Together, we have obtained a lot of these FOIA documents where David Dagan's lawyer is saying, hey, here's the Mueller list, or um, here's some materials that David Dagan says are relevant, and it's 
you know, this white paper on the DNZ hat attribution that he gave to the Department of Justice. It's, you know, domains uh, related to Cozy Bear or Fancy Bear and all this other information. So I don't know why people aren't talking about that. Let's see what else I want to talk about today. Um, yeah, so... Signing off on these FISA warrants. Third FISA warrant, fourth FISA warrant were invalidated. Uh, that came out a couple, a couple years ago now, I believe. And... I would have expected criminal charges, as I said, probably a year ago. And the fact that there haven't been any charges actually tells me that there is a conspiracy case potentially coming because you just can't let it go. There's just no way. There's no way you can just let the fourth FISA warrant go with everything that they knew at the time. And it's not just the Danchenko interviews that they had three of by then. They also had talked to Ivan Vorontsov by June 2017 at the latest who, you know, we haven't even found out anything about that 302. Nobody's gotten it yet. But one of the other data points, before I forget again, attribution of the DNC hack. That was like the major bombshell of the Sussman trial. And it completely blows my mind that this has not been covered by Fox News. It's not been covered by anybody. Just this group of guys on Twitter, apparently. When... The U.S. government formally attributed the hack of the DNC to Russia on October 7th, 2016. They did not have anything from CrowdStrike. All they had in my reading of the documents was a redacted copy of a narrative that CrowdStrike had provided with redactions. But as far as the actual server images and data requests and everything like that, that was still in process. And we know that because we have the communications from the Sussman trial in the trial exhibits where they're actually requesting all these files and documents from Michael Sussman and the CrowdStrike and DNC personnel. So when the U.S. government formally attributed the attack to Russia, they did not use anything from CrowdStrike. I know that there's no way they could have. They didn't have it. And that leaves open the question of what did they do to attribute the hack to Russia. And I think people are a little bit confused on that. So there's two attributions, okay? CrowdStrike had come on site and they immediately attributed the hack to Russia. That carries no weight with the U.S. government. That That's meaningless, okay? So yes, CrowdStrike attributed the hack to Russia, but then the U.S. government and what I think everybody had perceived as what had happened was that CrowdStrike came on site, they did the analysis, and then they provided their work product to the Department of Justice and the FBI. And then the FBI built on that. They looked at it or re-analyzed um, the data in some meaningful capacity. And then they agreed with what CrowdStrike had done. That's not what happened. So this, this idea and this narrative that's been out there for a few years is false. And you go back and you look at the testimony of people like Jim Comey and others well, Comey testified to an issue around the servers themselves not being analyzed. And Comey said, we requested the servers from the DNC. The DNC testified later, no, they didn't ever request the, the servers. 
or access to the servers. And that was the extent of it. And there was an inference to be drawn from the, the manner of that testimony that that material was relevant to the attribution, but it wasn't. <laughs> and it, it's sort of this massive elephant in the room, this gaping hole in the narrative, this huge omission from years ago that was perpetuated by dozens of people. They never used the materials from CrowdStrike. And the, the fact that they hid that is very telling for me. That, that tells me there's something very, very wrong with the attribution of the DNC hack. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what they use to actually do it. I have some theories. I want to be careful on this public podcast, okay? I can't start naming names and accusing people or um, you know, throwing out these theories. Uh, puts myself in, in some level of legal jeopardy, right? I don't want to be sued. Okay, doing my best to to give you the analysis. I, I'm obviously pursuing documents, trying to report the story as best as I can as what I've become as a citizen journalist, I guess, which I did not anticipate becoming. Um, but I can't start naming names like that. Okay, so there's a few few theories out there. We'll see what develops, and that's really I think the points that I wanted to hit. I mean, Joe Pianka, Andrew McCabe. Jim Comey, Peter Strzok, Maffa. I'd be very interested to actually hear these guys and their explanations for a lot of stuff that happened. Now, we don't have any smoking guns, okay? I don't have an email from Jim Comey to Hillary Clinton saying, yeah, we're, we're going to take care of this. Just send us you know, whatever garbage files you got. You know, I don't know if there's going to be a smoking gun file like that. But the fact that John Durham is continuing, I'm, I just admire the hell out of John Durham for continuing to pursue his investigation in the face of everything that is thrown at him. And it would be so easy for him to just walk away and write a report. I think he's got enough to write a report if that's what he wanted to do. I think he's serious about trying to bring criminal investigation, but he's not going to just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. He's going to do a methodical process. And if the weight of evidence is strong enough to bring criminal charges, he will. I think there'll be charges against private actors around the Clinton campaign. And I think there will be indictments for certain individuals at the FBI. And, you know, I've always went back to this point that John Ratcliffe makes and and a few others based on documents that they've seen that are not public yet that they believe there will be additional indictments. Now, a couple of months ago, I was a little bit more dismissive of that, right? And, I, you know, it's really hard to see if somebody's just posturing or what the case may be. But based on everything we just saw in the Sussman trial, I believe there are additional documents. And I think, you know, I don't think Ratcliffe is embellishing. I think there is something there that supports additional indictments. And then you have to look at, yes, I mean, statute of limitations, technically around the fourth FISA warrant, Durham has runway into September because on the last FISA renewal, they get 90 days, which is the, the FISA coverage period. And during that period, they still have a responsibility to the FISA court to report any exculpatory information, things of that nature. 
Um, so technically, I think through September, they can indict somebody for that fourth FISA warrant. But I, I don't think that's the avenue. OK, I think it's going to be a conspiracy charge. And you really don't have any concerns about statute of limitations with a conspiracy charge. There's there's just too many overt acts. And the statute of limitations runs five years from the last overt act. Now, an overt act is not necessarily a criminal act. It's just an act that is in furtherance of a conspiracy or the goal of a conspiracy. And there, there's plenty out there. But you can look at, I think it was a July 2018 uh, memo sent to Congress from the FBI, where they basically said, yeah, everything's fine with Igor Danchenko. He's Russian-based. Uh, he was truthful, yada, yada. And that's obviously false. And now I would construe that as an overt act. Hello. Um, but Hi. You could, How you are you start doing? Point out plenty. I mean, you know, if there's anything, if there's any more damning text messages or emails in 2018 or 2019 that informs sort of the, the narrative of what they were thinking or any actions that they took, I think Durham will have no trouble making a case. And I think that's what he's going to do. Now, GPS. Hopefully by now, he is well underway of getting those 1,500 uh, emails that Fusion GPS was claiming privilege over. I think it was a big, um, I think it was a big event to have the in-camera review come back and say, you know, 22 of the 38 documents had no basis to privilege. And I think that should make it much easier for Derm to get the 1,500 emails. Now, there were obviously a few documents that he didn't get, and that was they were basically withheld with the judge giving a wide degree of latitude to the declaration of alliance. So Durham might have to get creative to get some of those documents, but I, I would still bet, you know, half those documents Durham should be able to get with no problem. So once Durham gets those, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, is he going to determine that the alpha bank server allegations are based on fabricated data, which is pretty consistent with what the FBI said, who said that it was user-generated. If he determines that, then you have to look at a few individuals for uh, the potential of, of being the people that fabricated it. And that, that could easily bring criminal charges. I think, I think that's all I want to say for today. So... Covered a few points that I wanted to raise. I think the, the major takeaway, the major takeaway is the attribution of the DNC hack. I don't think there's anything bigger that has developed over the last couple of years than the fact that the U.S. government used nothing from CrowdStrike when they attributed the attack. And the biggest question that should be pounded on the table every single day by every news media outlet is what did the U.S. government use to attribute the hack of the DNC. If not, these reports and data from CrowdStrike. Whenever we get the answer to that, I think this thing will unravel very, very quickly. And I, I would anticipate a number of additional indictments. So I'm going to leave it there. As I said, over the next couple of weeks, I am going to do a few more things and I will try to provide some additional up updates. Um, I hope to generate a few different reports um, based on what develops. 
and I'll try to keep you in the loop either way. So uh, thanks for stopping in. I hope everybody's having a good holiday weekend and I will see you next time.